Most of my work is really about supporting those people to be able to do that journey the very best they can with just a bit of assistance. But I see over and over again how incredibly capable and courageous people are when life throws them something to deal with. I'm Lee Matthews, and you're listening to The Good Problem Podcast, a weekly series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. Today's episode unpacks a topic that can be uncomfortable for some of us, but is something that we'll all experience. Death. Death is the natural end of life, one certainty that every human being will experience yet something we are often deeply unfamiliar with and shy away from. My guest today is Zenith Farago, a professional death walker of over 20 years. Zenith is a leader in the field and has pioneered the concept of empowered continual care at the end of life. Zenith joins me today to talk about her own journey through life and the places and spaces she navigates daily. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Zenith. Hey. It's lovely to have you here. I want to jump right in and ask you a question I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? I probably don't think about doing good. I think about being of service. So that's probably something I'm much more familiar with, as I would probably say that I tend to be now what's termed a community resource. So I'm very accessible to people and I offer whatever I have that they might want from me. That might be the equivalent of doing good, but it's much more subtle and much more beneficial and I think probably much more rewarding. Would I be right in saying that you believe that doing good in whatever sense of the word that is to you is something that is integrated through your whole life, community, work, friends, family, or is it something that you think should be siloed off separately? (laughs) I'm in my 60s now, I'm 63. And I think that sort of approach to life should be part of everything that you are. It should be who you are in everything that you're doing. And generally I have a baseline, which is I try not to piss anybody off unless they're the sort of person I really want to piss off. But generally, I feel that it's a practice. So whatever you do, the more you practice it, the better at it you get. So the more you practice being selfish or self-centered, which is sometimes a good thing when you're taking care of yourself or you're not overextending for others. But generally, the more I practice something, the better at it I get. So It's been a long journey of trying to do good in whatever I might do. I don't always succeed. But the other thing I've really learned is that sometimes what looks like you're doing good may not actually be the best, that everything is multi-layered, very subtle layers to things, things are interconnected and interdependent. And yeah, so tread with the best effort you've got, and then you have no regrets, even if it doesn't turn out to be the best thing, but it was your best intention at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what this podcast is all about, actually, is is exploring the complexities that happen when you are trying to do good and you have good intentions, and, and it doesn't always work out the way you imagined. Zenith, 
You're a death walker. Can you tell us what that actually means in practice? Yeah, so what it means for me is that I am just walking towards my own death the very best I can. And with that, I feel like I have my arms outstretched. And in that wingspan, in that arm span, I'm taking my family and friends with me so that when I die, they can keep walking in their lives and in my loss. But on a professional level, I am accompanying people in their journeys. So that's if they're the dying person or if they are the family who are about to be bereaved or in sudden death, they are the family where someone has died suddenly and they're bereaved and we're all sitting at the kitchen table and I'm responding to what they want from me. So often that's information. Sometimes it's support. Sometimes it's to explain things or just be someone who is much more familiar with sudden death than they are and someone they can trust and someone they feel will guide them and be with them in that experience without trying to sell them anything or take advantage of them. And we have a very incredibly well-developed death culture here like a death style to complement our lifestyles because we've been doing death well, you know, for the last 25 years. Yeah. I'm fascinated to understand how you got into this work. What happened for you to realise that this is what you wanted to do? Oh, I didn't want to do it. It wasn't something I was looking at doing, thinking, oh, death, that's for me, or, oh, there's a niche market, I'll feel that. No, A really dear friend of mine died suddenly in the garden. She was in her early 50s. I was probably, I think I was 36, that's right. But she was in good health. She'd had an aneurysm that morning. And I went with her husband to the hospital for him to identify her body. And he took me with him, which is sort of now I know it's very unusual that anyone lets you in if you're not family. But anyway, at that point, something was looking out for me. And I went into the morgue with him and one of their daughters. And at that point, she was laying on a trolley, the morgue trolley, in full health. So it's not like when someone's died expectedly and they're wasted and they look like death. So she really looked as if she was alive, apart from the fact that she wasn't breathing. And while he was busy consoling their daughter, the husband, I was stroking her head and having one of those silent conversations that you have with people who aren't going to answer back, saying, oh, my God, I can't believe you're dead. You know, I've never seen a dead body, you know, blah, blah, blah. And with that, I had the experience of seeing and sort of feeling her life force leave her body through my hand. She was quite a committed Buddhist and spiritual person. I, of course, wasn't. But what I have going for me is I never miss a moment. I've been a sort of hedonist for a lot of my life. And I know moments of pleasure or moments of intensity or one-offs. I just thought, oh my God. And I turned to the family to say, can you see this? And they were busy, you know, lost in their own distress. So I thought, oh, well, it's obviously a phenomenon. I don't want to miss it. And When we walked out of the morgue, I said to Richard, Sylvia's husband, 
we could do this ourselves. We don't need to give her to strangers. And so I called into a funeral director on the way home in Bangalore on my way back to Byron. And fortunately, he was incredibly generous and he gave me all the information I needed, the paperwork, he explained the process and we did it ourselves. But because of his generosity to me, he was a great teacher for me in that if anybody asks anything from me, I give it if I can, because I don't know what they're going to do with it, but I know what will happen if I don't. And I know that if he had not given me his knowledge so freely, my whole journey may not have started. So from then on, it just had a life of its own. Other people asked me if I would do the ceremony, take care of the paperwork for them. So I assisted people to do it themselves. And I did that for many years, but now I don't do it because part of what I'm teaching is how to do it yourself. So you don't need me. It definitely did take on a life of its own. You set up the Natural Death Care Centre in Byron Bay in Australia for our international audiences. Can you walk us through the stages and experiences in natural death care? It's something I read about on your website and I'm really interested to unpack that a bit. There's a global movement to reclaim death into our own hands. And in Australia, in America, in England, probably some countries in Europe, there is a very well-developed network and movement of people. So the Natural Death Care Centre is a small charity and we are one of those. And what we're looking at is offering people advice, guidance, education, information, resources. And the stages are for expected death, it's people are well, then they're ill, then they're dying, then they're dead. And then there's the in-between, which has after-death care of the body and pre-ceremony, when you are making arrangements, planning. Then you've got the ceremony, the disposal of the body, and then you have the bereavement period, which can be long or short and can be a lifetime and can be easy and joyful or can be wretched and despairing. What about language around death and, and how it influences the grieving process, both positively and negatively? That's a perfect lead-in because I think the concept of the grieving process is very set in people's minds without understanding what it is, loosely connected to Kubler-Ross and the five stages of grief. I have to say I've never read any Kubler-Ross. I don't know what the five stages of grief are. And my way of learning is much more experiential by doing it and being with people rather than reading it in a book. And so I think the grieving process, whatever that is, is very different for each person. So it depends on who has died and how they die. And it depends on who you are and your relationship to them and your experience of death so far will give you a response and that response will be different every time. So if someone's elderly, they've lived a fabulous life and they die, then you know you can be sad that they've died because they're no longer physically in your life. But it's not going to be a heartbreaking, wrenching, take your legs out, breaking your heart experience. On the other hand, you've got 
someone that you love. It may be a parent, it may be a partner, it may be a child, it may be a very close friend who kills themselves. And then that can rip you apart, that can break you open. And the response to that can be devastating. And what people need to appreciate is that that response is also made up of a sort of an equation because it's your love for that person transformed. Because if you don't love someone, you just say, oh, that's terrible, but you don't feel anything. It's when you have tangible felt body response to the news of that death, and then it can take you on a journey. And especially if that person is someone young, then there's often a feeling for people that they've died too soon, which I would say it makes for very difficult language and concept around that because they may die young, but can anybody die too soon? It's a really quirky concept. It may be too soon for us because we didn't want them to go, but is it too soon for the person? especially when they have made that decision themselves and they made an action to follow that decision. So whether we agree with it or not is not the point. Whether we think that was a bad decision or, oh, my God, we can't live without them, they have made that choice, they've made a decision, and our work is to, to live with that loss and process our response to that death, not immediately, that takes a bit of practice. And the more familiar we become, the better at it we generally get. Again, it's a practice. But for people who experience that type of loss for the first time, that can be just a completely devastating experience. Yeah. And I think also, you know, that the language around what you're supposed to feel can kind of hijack the process that you're going through yourself. You know, if you're you're kind of told that this is, like you said, the stage of grief that you should be in, you don't feel as sad as people are telling you maybe you should or the messages that are coming from outside are giving you. Is this the kind of thing that you help people navigate, these conflicting feelings and messages? Sure, but by doing this podcast with you where people are probably sitting in their car or they're sitting in their own comfortable home or they're running on the around the park, whatever they're doing, this is landing into them and they have time to think about it before they find themselves in that experience. People often want a tick list of things to say. What's the best thing to say? What do I need to say? Well, the best thing to say is something that you mean and is something considered. So for example, a lot of people feel the line, oh, I'm sorry for your loss. So a few years ago that came out and people were like, oh, great, that's a safe line. You know, I've got something to say when I bump into that person. But, you know, if you're the 10th person in a row that says that to that person, they just want to slap you because it's a meaningless, safe line. But the baseline is you cannot say anything to them that makes them have to look after you and make you feel better because you don't know what to do. If, if, And sometimes people say to me, I see people changing lanes in the supermarket so we don't have to pass each other because they don't know what to say. So you can say, I don't know what to say, or ship or whatever it is, and you are much better to say something that is real, 
than something that is trite. But at the same time, you have to meet them where they are and not suck any energy from them, which I see a lot, especially when a small child dies. And the other families with small children go up to the couple whose child has actually died. And they are like all over them, you know, like a big, heavy, gray blanket, because it's the other family's worst nightmare. But it's not actually happening to them. So they need to check themselves. And when they come into contact with the family who's actually have that loss and meet them where they're at, not come with their own projection onto them. And I know that what happens for people when I come is because I come neutral. I come caring and I come real, but I come neutral. I'm not like, oh, that's a good thing or great they've died or, oh, that's terrible. Because sometimes when I say, how is it for you? They say, oh, we're really glad she died or he needed to die. He was suffering. And so if I come with my big gray, heavy blanket of trying to make it better for them or trying to look like I care, that can be so patronizing or matronizing that it doesn't serve anyone. And it just actually makes their job harder having to deal with you and your insincerity or your insecurity about what to say. So just meet them where they're at and say, how are you? And not how are you today, because in any given day, they can feel a wealth of emotions. So in one minute, they might be crying. The next minute, they might be laughing. And they will say, oh, I'm feeling good right now. I'm doing the shopping. It's grounding me or something like that. So meet them where they're at. But it's already as bad as it can be. Try not to make it any worse. Yeah. Excellent advice. What about suicide? I noticed you deliberately don't use that word. You you talk about killing yourself. Is there a reason for that? And how tricky is it for people to navigate this kind of situation where, again, there's expectations coming from outside about what you should be feeling and what happened and how you should grieve? Well, that's a lot of questions there. <laughs> So I'm going to start with the first one, which was about the language. So yes, about 12 years ago, maybe longer now, I could see from delivering ceremony. So when I'm standing and I've got two or 300 people looking at me, thinking that with my ceremony, I'm going to be able to make something better for them, which I sort of can, but they sort of have to do it themselves. But I'm making an offering that may assist them. And I absolutely saw that people who keep using the phrase suicide or commit suicide, they sort of seem to be stuck in this loop. And it doesn't often allow them to move forward in their journey of processing and ultimately of healing or living with that loss. So when I looked into the language, suicide, like homicide, genocide, ecocide, any of those, means to kill oneself. So you're actually saying that, but you're saying it in Latin, I think. And the phrase commit suicide and the other language around that, failed attempt, they succeeded in killing themselves. All of those words are when, and in some countries it still is, a crime to kill yourself. So 
The state can have the death penalty, the highest penalty in the land, but they also have laws that mean you can't kill yourself. It's illegal. So if people succeeded, they were dead. If they failed, they would then be arrested, charged, go to court, and often imprisoned for that attempt to kill themselves. So when I first realized that, I was like, I don't want to perpetuate that concept because for some people, the choice to end their own life is not a result of mental illness. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes people are just tired of living or their life is so arduous, they don't want to suffer anymore. So who am I to judge what they should experience and what they should suffer? And so I started to use the phrase, they've ended their own life, because the phrase to take one own, it's their life anyway. So what does it mean, taking it? But now I very rarely use that phrase, because I saw that when you actually say, especially in the ceremony or at the kitchen table or in conversation with people, that they've cured themselves, something seems to shift in them. And even though it seems harsh, people don't go, Zenith, don't say that. We can't handle that phrase. It frees something up in them that starts to be able to taste the realness of that, especially when it's sudden and unexpected. Because some people may have tried to kill themselves before, or it's always on the cards for them because people aren't surprised. They might be shocked, but they're not surprised. So I just feel that it's a much better, helpful thing to say. Obviously, I say it as kindly as I can. I don't want to slap someone who's already feeling terrible. But I do see that it's beneficial in the ceremony and it's beneficial at the kitchen table in the consultation with people. But again, you can only say those sorts of things if you're embodying the compassion to say it because you believe it's going to be of assistance to them. So that's the first part of your long question. The second one is, well, I've probably covered it because I do think that it offers much more assistance in their process of dealing with that loss, especially when it's sudden and shocking. Absolutely. What about you, Zenith? How do you cope with and process the stories that you are a part of and these journeys for families that you're a part of? I have a small belief, like many people, that prevention is better than cure. So even though I'm working in my own community and I'm dealing with lots of people who are in other communities, but I have to be with that family at the kitchen table and then I will see them around town. I will see them in the supermarket. I will see them at the farmer's market. I will see them at a party or at the cinema. So I have to make sure that whatever I'm doing, I'm totally authentic in that. And one of the things I don't do is I don't merge with them. So I bring a respect to whatever they're feeling. I honour their situation and who they are, but I don't take it on and I don't merge. That's the easiest way to describe it. Because I believe that that suffering is their love transformed, I have a respect that they need to feel that. And so I don't try and make them not feel it. I sit with them while they're crying and howling. People are throwing themselves at me to have a big cry or a howl. And I stand with them in that, but I don't take it on. Most of my work is really about empowering 
and supporting those people to be able to do that journey the very best they can with just a bit of assistance and a bit of guidance. But I see over and over again how incredibly capable and courageous people are when life throws them something to deal with. And I can't speak for everyone, but the people, the community, the family and friends that I work with, I see them a few months later and even recently a woman, her husband was dying. I went to see them at home. He was on the couch. He died. They built the coffin for him. And about a week after his death, I saw her on the beach walking the dog. We stopped and had a chat and she was just so grateful that it was the very best it could be so she you know that's a long loving relationship she misses him but she's able to be with it and she'll have moments where she's probably laying on the bed crying she probably misses him in the morning and going to bed the most like most couples but it hasn't destroyed her and we see people every day who are walking around with loss, many people who lose children, parents of children who have died, and we don't know their scars on the inside, you know, but many people experience incredible things and live on. Navigating that in-between space that you talked about before where there's a lot of practical things to do and organize is a really tricky time when you're also dealing with your emotions about the, the loss of that person. What are some of the legal and social rights that many people who are in that in-between space are not aware of in terms of moving forward from there? Because you've obviously got an international audience because you referred to that before, it's sort of a bit tricky. But I can explain in the state that I live in, in New South Wales, Australia, it is possible to die in your own bed, not go anywhere to a funeral director, for the body to be kept cold for up to five days, kept at home, to then be put in a coffin or a shroud and then taken to be buried on private ground or in the cemetery or to be cremated. But what a lot of people are aware of are myths. So a lot of people think it's a myth that you can't build your own coffin. So there are all these things surrounding us that people perpetuate, not deliberately trying to confuse or deceive people, but they're just spreading myths. So what part of my work is to dispel those myths. So if you're super keen to find out what the rights are where you live or where the people that you're going to be taking care of live, then I could strongly advise you to contact some natural death person or home funeral person if you live in the States. There's national peak bodies who will be able to advise you of the law where you live and assist you to work within the law to get what you want. So that might be after-death body care. It may be building a coffin. It may be transporting that person in your own vehicle It may be burying on private land. So a lot of local councils or local government areas have a policy on burial on private ground. But you are best served by finding those things out before the need arises. Because if it's not possible in the state or 
local government area where you live, then you can forget about it and put your energy into finding a funeral director who will honour your wishes and work with you rather than try and sell you something or propel you down a path that may not be the one you want. Because the thing that we're trying to avoid is for people who say afterwards, oh God, I wished I'd known that when my mum died. I wished I'd known that when my dad died. We would have done that for sure. You know, we have to play our parts in it. So just like anything, you do research on buying a fridge. You do research on going on holiday. Go and do some research on death and dying and what's available to you. Find a funeral director that you like, who's not going to rip you off, but is going to charge you a fee for their service. And one who's going to offer you options and choices so that you can make the decisions that are right for you. Because I see very clearly that the journey after death for people, the more they participate and are involved in that, and the more decisions they make because they have the right information, they're easier and healthier their bereavement, which is why I'm not using the word grief process because what I see is when people are involved in the dying and the death and the after death and then the ceremony and the disposal, you know, when they're no longer physically in their lives, when the body has been buried or cremated, they walk back into their lives. And when people say to them, oh, I'm sorry to hear about that death, they say, oh, my God, we had the best time. You know, it's sad, but we really honoured them. The ceremony can save you 12 months of therapy and a good wake after a good ceremony can really process a lot of stuff together because that group of people might only come together because the linchpin for them is gone. So people are sharing an amazing amount of subtle and energetic levels of communication together, and then they're all gone back to wherever they came from. But people's experience of that loss is very well supported by coming together, which is why COVID has been so difficult for people. I'm interested in picking up on the thread of the myth and, you know, how it's perpetuated around what you need to do post-death. Obviously, the funeral industry is an industry like any other and exists to profit in many cases and, and private companies are heavily involved in that. It's also a service industry like hospitality. It's there to give you a service. So you have a choice in who you use and you should look at what they're offering and see if that suits you. It's a bit like going out for dinner, getting a haircut. You don't let them just corral you into something. And there are a lot of great funeral directors and there are a lot of people who are really wonderful working in that industry. But there are also a lot of people who aren't lovely or great or caring or kind. So it's up to you to find the ones that work for you and that you trust and can work with. But what people aren't aware of generally is that in America and England and Australia, you know, the bastions of whiteness, there are massive corporations who own probably over 75% of the funeral industry. So in Australia, it's Invercare. In England, it's, I think, the co-op and some other companies. But they are all under one flagship. 
So they may say Bill Blocks and Son or Jenny Smith and Daughters, but they are actually owned by a big corporation leaving that name up there. So people think, oh, they're a nice little family-owned business. So when you're looking for one, you can look for Australian owned or but what you want is really family owned and operated if you want something specific and care but some of the big companies are actually giving very good care but they are also very profit driven and will trying to upsell so just be aware you know do your work and that's why going in pre need with a list of questions It's a really great activity to do with with a good friend. Sit around a group of you, get a list of questions together that you've always wanted the answers to, especially if you're sitting there and myths come up like, oh, you're not allowed to do that. Write it down. Go into that funeral directors with a clipboard and your list of questions looking like, you know, just regular members of the community And then pull it out and say, right, we've got some questions we'd really like to ask you. And we're sharing this information with our group of friends so that we can make positive and correct choices for us when that time comes. And then get the answers to those questions. And if they're not satisfactory, if they don't say, yes, we can accommodate that, or yes, you're free to do that, then just say thanks, but no thanks. And it can be a bit like being in Bali where as you go to walk out, they don't want to lose that business. So they might say, well, you know, we might consider it in your case. So it's fun. It's so much fun to mess with the system. And it's very empowering for people to know that they're not going to get ripped off. That's what people say to me all the time. We don't mind paying for a service, but we don't want to be taken advantage of, especially when we're not feeling our best. Such a vulnerable time. So I hear that some congratulations are also in order. You've just been voted the 2021 Byron Shire Citizen of the Year for your work. What's it like to be recognised in this way? It was a little bit overwhelming, actually, but part of it is for my work with Death and Dying and the community because I also offer a Day of the Dead once a year for everyone and I'm you're often speaking at any event where people invite me to. But the other thing I do is I put on two performances of an event called the Vagina Conversations, where women tell their own stories. And that is a fundraiser for the local women's service. And we've been doing that for the last six years. And for the last nine years, we've been doing a flash mob on the beach as part of the One Billion Rising movement on Main Beach every 14th of February, which has turned into a cultural community event. And it's lots of fun. It's very empowering. You can see I'm big on empowering people. But when they made the announcement for the award, they did mention the vagina conversations. And someone came up to me, a very straight person and said, oh, Zenith, you know, that's a very well-deserved award. Congratulations. And I particularly love it because that is the only time the council are going to say the word vagina. And, you know, that is part of what's happening. That exposure has made the word vagina banded about all over town. So people will be calling out to each other, oh, I'll see you at the vaginas or, oh, I'm being a vagina this year. And 
I just think that that's been a fantastic benefit. It wasn't obviously my intention. I didn't know what my intention was. Clearly, I'm someone who doesn't have a plan. But it's a bit like people say, oh, someone needs to do something about that. And I think, oh, it's me. I need to do something about that. So that's exactly what happened. And we did the flash mob. I did it on my own. I just put an ad in the paper and 80 people came, mostly women, children. And it's just rolled from there. So part of what that award was about is for someone who's just done their own thing, not given a shit, not tried to fit in, but just continued with what I believe to be what the community needs, whether they think they need it or not. But what I find most amusing is that I've spent 35 years doing my own thing, you know, being a a young, outrageous sort of person. And then you can become the most respected person in town by just being who you are and committed to service in a way, but not at my own expense. So my life is very imbalanced. I've always had a great time and I've never given on empty. I've always filled myself up with good things and enjoyable experiences and good people, good food, good alcohol, because I need to have a reservoir to be able to keep giving, especially when it's in situations that are you know, difficult or demanding or challenging or complex. And I think that part of my feeling about winning is that I hope that that aspect of my life, which is very public and very open, assists people in, let's stand up, let's just stand up for what we believe in and do it and put this event on and see what happens rather than practicing, oh no, you know, we, who are we to put that on? Who gives a shit? Just do it. And if people don't want it, they won't come. And then you can go back to doing something else. But often people like me are people who stand up and say, well, here it is. Do you want it? And if it doesn't, it will just die its own death quietly. But if people want it, they will come. Isn't that some old saying, you know, build it and they will build come. Build it and they will come. Yes. And I think that's true. But if you don't build it, you know, it's like I just watched the film about Bangara, the dance company, and I think, what would Australia be? I remember when they came into being and that old. And I remember think thinking, oh, that's fantastic. But I didn't really appreciate what an incredible contribution they have made to Aboriginal affairs, but to the whole of Australia and to the world, actually, to have an Indigenous dance company. And I just recently saw that and I thought, what would have happened if someone, the core of those people, had not stood up and said, yeah, we can do this. We can do this in a small community hall. Let's see what happens. And look at what's happened. You know, incredible Bangara Ra. Absolutely. Zenith, who would you say has been your greatest influence in the work that you do? <sighs> That's a bit difficult because I spent my time going to sit with uh, great wisdom teachers. So, you know, the Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, Joan Halifax, Ram Das. So they have been an incredible influence on me on a big, magnificent level of seeing a bigger interconnectedness to humanity, to the planet, to the great mystery that we're all part of. 
And so they've really shifted me out of the small into the large. But I had a great headmistress when I was at school between seven and 11. She was an incredible humanitarian and child educator. And some of the things I learned from her, I see them coming back into my life when I became about 40. And I also feel my parents very ordinary. But in their ordinariness, I think they were extraordinary because they did their very best. And it was nothing great, but it was nothing terrible. And when I grew up and I learned what had happened to other children, especially young girls, I was very grateful for my parents. And some of the very simple seeds that they planted, especially my mum, like money doesn't make you happy. You're lucky you've got legs to run around on things like that, that were just part of a childhood. I can see that those simple concepts that we say to children can really bear fruit later on. And so I'm very committed to planting seeds in everything that I do at any point in time, whenever I have the ability to speak to anyone. So I'm hoping that even in this, I'm planting seeds for people that may blossom later you know, when their need arises, or they will sit around with their group of friends and talk about death and dying or vaginas and do something useful with that for them and for for their group of friends or for their community. But if you don't stand up to make a change in the world, then, you know, you're leaving it to someone else and that someone else might also be leaving it to someone else. So just start with something small, the return is so great. No, I love that. I love that. My next question is a bit of a philosophical question. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? And when I say that, I mean something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. You know, at the very core of everything I do, I do as a feminist, because until that imbalance is addressed and comes back into balance, until Uh, respect for gender, for women in particular, is brought into a balance and held in high regard. I think, you know, we look at things in the past, but the fall of the patriarchy, I only hope that I live long enough, I don't expect to. But I've seen things happen in my life that I didn't expect to, like, you know, same-sex marriage, for example, even as a marriage celebrant, even as a lesbian, as a dyke, I never expected to see that in my lifetime. And so I think gender issues, racial discrimination, and much worse than that, you know, racism at its very core, white supremacy. I think all of those is just so, so need to be addressed. And, you know, I just wonder what the world would have looked like if at the very beginning we had a core respect for everyone, whoever they were, whatever they were. And we moved with making decisions, not from a fear base and from a contraction, which is what the patriarchy does all the time, from greed, from control, from an insatiable greed for money and power, rather than a sense of well-being for everyone and including everyone into making those decisions collectively for the well-being of everyone who lives in a community or a country or a society. So fuck the patriarchy. (laughs) Excellent. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? And I'm wondering if it's what you just said. (laughs) I think so. I think so. Because it's the enemy 
for everyone. Everyone loses. Women, children, people of color, people with disabilities, anybody that doesn't meet that echelon of whatever they're about. And people lose in intimate relationships because of cultural conditioning and the patriarchy. So it affects us at our very core about how to be intimate and kind to each other, how to raise children, how to live with our neighbours, how to appreciate people who we're not familiar with or don't understand. All of that is lost to us in the dominant paradigm. So I think that that's probably what I have to say on that. No, I love it. I love it. (laughs) Can you tell me about someone who you think is doing a lot of good in the world right now? I think there are so many people quietly, you know, doing their thing in their own communities. Uh, There are people on a global stage, a lot of people who are unnamed and unknown, you know, outside of their own piece. But I think together, everyone is making a difference, who's standing up for integrity, for equal human rights. And, I mean, the people who are well-known, we know who they are. But it's the others, the others who are doing that work on the ground, you know, the people in Myanmar, people in Hong Kong, people in all those countries where democracy or so-called democracy is under threat and, you know, are willing to put their lives on the line. Those are people who I bring my respect and my support to them quietly. Yeah, absolutely. Where is your favourite place on earth? My favourite place on earth is in the ocean. Yeah. Does it matter what ocean? No. It's no. in a body of water, whatever that looks like. There's this incredible poem, I think, by Jeff Foster that someone gave to me a while ago, which is about giving yourself over to the ocean. And because you can become one with the ocean because it supports your weight and you can't discern where you begin and end. And I think giving yourself over to water, a body of water like that, can be a great practice for dying. I mean, on the land, it would be my mattress because when I lie in my bed every night, you know, I just think, oh, how lucky am I to have a bed? And I become one with the mattress and I fall asleep. I'm safe, you know, I'm fed. And I know that that's not the case for everyone. Yeah, we are very lucky. What book are you reading right now? Oh God, I just finished just last night The Starless Sea by Erin Morgenstern, who wrote The Night Circus. They're magical stories. And I was actually awake for three hours in the middle of the night finishing it because I needed to get to the end. And I'm also going traveling and it's a big, chunky book and I didn't want to take it with me. It's a fantastic book, especially for someone like me who's dealing with reality politically and working-wise. It was a lovely treat to be lost into that book. Best feeling there is. What about podcasts? Do you listen to them? I don't. I'm busy talking on them and uh, (laughs) responding to people. But I've always loved This American Life because it was cutting a path that a lot of people have followed. And there are so many great ones. But no, I'm busy because I'm often busy interacting with people out at the beach or sometimes when I'm driving, but I generally take what's coming. So I'll listen to the radio. I'm not a big podcast person. 
Where can people find you or find out more about your work? So the Natural Death Care Centre has a website. It's a charity. It's easy to find. I travel and teach, and those trainings are on that website. We're not doing online training because I haven't got round to it. I need someone to manage me to do that because I'm much more interested in interactive. And there are lots of people offering lots of teachings about death and dying. And part of what I feel is that if people come to me, it's a transmission as well as a piece of education. And I'm also dancing with everyone that's in the room and what they bring to that training. And there is a squillion podcasts, there's a movie, there's a book, <laughs> there's a conversation on the ABC, there's a whole lot of things. I mean, God, take your pick. Excellent. Well, Zenith, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I have certainly learned a huge amount from you. So thank you for educating me. And I love what you're doing. I think it's so wonderful to be challenging the norms around something that, you know, most people are thinking that there's just one way to do things. So I love what you're doing. And thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. The Good Problem Podcast is a project of Alto. We partner with purpose-driven leaders from the business, non-profit and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical and sustainable impact. Find out more at www.altoglobalconsulting.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Alto.